It is good to see you guys. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to celebrate summer and start our week in worship. If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab that. Turn with me to the book of Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of those home with you. But Judges near the beginning of the Bible. We're going to continue our study this summer uh, looking at some of our favorite stories. These are the stories that we grew up with. If you ever spent a week or a summer at Vacation Bible School, doesn't matter what kind of church it was, these are the stories we love to read and celebrate when we think about the Old Testament scriptures. But this summer, we are looking back at these stories uh, with one goal in mind, and that is we want to find Jesus in our favorite stories. Because so often we learn these stories and we get excited about these stories and these characters, but we miss the main point. And the main point of all of scripture, as we've seen, is Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at another famous story, maybe one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It's the story of Samson. You know the story of Samson in the Bible? When, you, when I first say Samson, what comes to mind? I didn't hear any of that. Okay. I love Samson, though. Like I, like, I love the story of Samson because I find so much of myself and my story in the story of Samson. Like, his imposing strength, right? Like, I, I like to think of myself like that. And also his sinfulness and selfishness and stupidity. So maybe one more than the other. But nonetheless, when we look through this story, we will see some of our story in the story of Samson. If you have your Bibles, Judges chapter 13. All right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, sixth book of the Bible, seventh book of the Bible, I'm sorry, chapter 13, we get the story of Samson. And Samson has more space dedicated to his story in the book of Judges than any of the 12 Judges. And so we're going to fly through it just like we've been doing, going to look at a few different points along the way, and then we will find Jesus in this story. Judges 13, verse 1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the context, the backstory of our story today. The people of Israel, at this point, they are settled into the promised land. We've kind of been following along with their story. We've been skipping ahead quite a ways, but Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We skipped the story of Joshua, but he led them through the wilderness into the promised land. And now the people of Israel, God's people, have been settled into the promised land, the land of Canaan, for several generations and God has richly blessed them. He's provided for them in every way. They are comfortable. They are content. But over time, they've grown complacent. And they've started to take for granted their relationship with God. And so they're in this cycle where they grow content. They grow complacent. They take God for granted. And God gives them what they want. They want to be like all the other people. And so he lets them be like all the other people. And he lets them be taken captive. Uh, have you ever noticed that when we grow comfortable and complacent, we can be taken captive? It's in my life, it's often when God has been most good to us and most gracious that I take God for granted. Like when I'm really in a, in a season of suffering or, or, or waiting, I'm always looking for God. But when God has been so abundantly gracious, I can take him for granted. And when I take God for granted, I can step away from his grace. That's what the people of Israel were doing. They were enjoying the blessings of God. They began thinking that they had somehow earned the blessings of God. They began taking God for granted. We know that they were in this cycle of rejecting God, the God who redeemed them, and so they started serving the gods of the people in whose land they lived. They were called to be set apart for the glory of God. Instead, they wanted to be like all the other people. And so the Lord really just gave them what they wanted. They looked around in the land where God had settled them. They saw the other people living there. And they wanted to be like them. And so God said, you can be like them. He gave them the desires of their heart. He gave them into the hands of foreign people who worshiped foreign gods. 
And in this part of the story, those foreign people are the Philistines. Now, we know a lot about the Philistines from the biblical narrative and extra-biblical history. People have done, archaeology has revealed much of the people of the Philistines. They were, if we were just going to sum it up, they were not good people. Like, they were bad people. They were, like, really bad people. The stuff we see on TV that takes place in the Middle East that makes our stomach turn, some of the evil that is perpetuated on the people over there, the Philistines, they started most of it. Now, they were sophisticated people. They weren't just barbarians. Their weaponry, their architecture, their culture were far beyond, advanced far beyond any other civilization at the time. They were, history tells us, the first ones to work with iron and make iron weapons. So you think what kind of a military advantage that would be to have iron when you were going up against lesser weapons. They were the first ones to employ battle formations when they went to war. Their art, their pottery, their architecture were all advanced. They were building multi-story buildings and bridges at a time when the people of Israel were basically just hanging out in the fields with their sheep. They were a sophisticated group of people, but they were also a depraved group of people. They built their whole civilization on piracy and conquest. They were in every way a militarized society. Uh, their parties were epic for debauchery. They pioneered a thing called in the Hebrew, it's called mista. It's a word that literally means a week-long drinking feast. This was before colleges were ever invented. But the Philistines, week-long drinking feast. They were also big into pork, and, uh, which Israel considered unclean. And they, when they took Israel captive, they filled their countryside with pigs. They were unspeakably cruel. Uh, when they captured a town, they would mutilate men while they were living, torture them, and then impale them. It was just gruesome. And like I said, archaeology and artwork has revealed some of their tactics. But what we need to know for the sake of today's story is they, the Philistines were enemies of God in every way. They were opposed to the work of God. They were opposed to the people of God. At the same time, numerically, culturally, economically, and militarily, they were superior to Israel in every way. This is the context for our story. Like Israel's in this cycle where they would take the blessings of God for granted. They would backslide. They would forsake God. God would sell, let them go into captivity. Eventually, they would repent. They would cry out to God, and he would send a judge to be a savior for his people. The story goes on. It says, there was a certain man. So this is the story. The people of Israel in captivity for 40 years, a long season. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite, which means set apart to God from the womb. And he shall begin, he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of of the Philistines. All right, we're not going to go through this verse by verse, but this, this is the birth announcement. Like the people of God enslaved to the Philistines and all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, an angel of God appears to a certain woman whose name we don't even know. And I don't know why we don't know her name, but I love that we don't know her name. Because when I read the Bible, it's these people that are kind of in the background, the seemingly insecure people that remind me that salvation is always for ordinary, unimpressive people. She had a pretty incredible experience nonetheless. An angel appeared, an angel of the Lord appeared to her, visited her to tell her she was going to have a son. Like, how cool would it be 
You know, if you had conceived a child that an angel of God was there to appear to tell you you were going to have a son, I don't know your experience, but from watching my wife, the only thing that told her we were going to have a child was nausea and exhaustion. Here, an angel of the Lord appeared with good news from God that she was going to have a son, but he wasn't going to be like every other child. His name was going to be Samson. He was going to be set apart. He was going to have a Nazarite vow, which means just set apart physically um, for a special calling. His purpose was to begin to deliver God's people from the hand of their Philistines. Now, verse 5, it says, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. I circled that in my Bible this week. I can't tell you how many times I've read this story. I've learned about it in vacation Bible school and Sunday school growing up, but I've never noticed until this week. When the angel of the Lord appears with this birth announcement for Samson, he tells his mother, your son is going to be special. He's going to be set apart. His purpose is to save the people of God, but he is only going to begin the salvation process. And what it tells us is that God was starting something in Samson, a salvation in Samson for his people that was going to point to a greater salvation that would come in the per person and the work of Jesus. It, what God started with Samson would find a greater fulfillment in Jesus. And so Manoah and his wife, they have this announcement from God, and they spend the rest of this chapter back and forth trying to figure out, trying to make sense of what God said. You know, his wife was old and advanced in years. She had been barren. She was advanced past the age of childbearing. They're trying to figure it out. So the angel kind of comes and goes. And finally, in verse 17, it says, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. Now, here's the thing. Manoah is asking a lot of questions. I would have a lot of questions. And what he says to the angel is, what's your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. I'm not really sure that was his motive. And I'm not calling Manoah a liar, but I wonder if, if God said, I'm going to do incredible things in your midst, Manoah, if you just walk in faithfulness. And Manoah's answer is like, I need details. Because if I was in this story, that would be me. Like, God, I am so grateful for your presence in my life. I'm so grateful for this wonderful blessing that you're about to bestow on us in the form of a son to save your people. But I'd really like if you would explain how it's all going to go. So if you just tell me your name and some, some important information, I'll be sure to give you credit when it all comes true. The angel of the Lord said to him in verse 18, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? We don't have time to dig into all the details on this, but... What the angel of the Lord is saying is you don't need to know all the details. What you need to know is the character and the heart of the God who came and called you to have this son. That his name is wonderful. It doesn't mean just mean that he's got a really great name. It's, it's, no, it's a name that, that causes us to stand in awe, to wonder. And the reason I think that's important, I point that out, is because the purpose of our study this summer isn't just to celebrate our favorite and familiar stories. Our purpose this summer is to circle back and find Jesus in these stories we grew up with so that we can stand in awe of God, so that we can see how wonderful he is, so that we can lead a life of worship, and ultimately so we can want what he wants. God was appeared to Manoah and his wife and says, I'm going to do immeasurably more in your midst, but I'm not going to give you all the information. You're going to have to walk in faith. You're going to have to stick close to me I'm just, and, and trust the one whose name is wonderful. The story goes on. It says, uh, they worship the angel of the Lord. And verse 24 says, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And so there's this angel birth announcement. 
Manoah and his wife, they try to figure it out, but at the end of the day, they worship God, they put their faith in God, God follows through on his promises, they have a son in her old age, his name is Samson, they set him apart for the work that God has called him. And that's really all we know about Noah, or, um, Samson's childhood, kind of an in, insecure childhood, or sorry, uh, insignificant childhood as far as we can tell, but the child grew and the Lord blessed him. But then, at some point, we're not sure how old he was, Samson lived a pretty incredible life. If you've got your Bibles, it's Judges chapter 14 to Judges chapter 16. We're just going to kind of flip through and see some of the highlights of Samson's life. There's so much here. But Samson, when he got old enough, he decided that he wanted to get married. And so Samson, so Judges chapter 14, Samson starts looking around for a wife, and he finds one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now remember, the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. But nonetheless, one of the Philistine girls caught Samson's eye, and so it says, Then he came up and told his father, 14.2, and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, they're not a racist group of people. They just want Samson, their son, to marry someone who loves and worships the same God that they love and worship. They said, Can you not find anyone among our daughters who know and love God and marry her? And Samson says, it says, But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And this is going to kind of become the narrative of Samson's life. Anything he sees, he wants. And because God has blessed him with strength and, and, and stature and uh, just his favor, Samson just seems to get whatever he wants, whether it's good for him or not. And so Samson takes his mother and his father, and they go to the territory of the Philistines, to the city of Timnah, and they're on their way, and this, this lion appears. And Samson, just to protect his family, takes the lion, and because God has given him this incredible strength, it says the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he just tears the lion as someone tears a young goat. What that means, I have no idea. Like, he makes it, says, makes it sound like it's easy to tear a young goat. But nonetheless, Samson just tears the young goat, and they just keep going. He finds a, a wife from the Philistines, and then when he's coming back home, there is the, goat car, or, sorry, the, the, uh, the lion carcass that he had killed on the way. But in the lion carcass is, some, is a beehive, and there's some honey. And so Samson, one of the things he wasn't allowed to do was touch anything dead. But he reaches down inside the lion carcass. He takes some of the honey. He eats it. He provides it to his, his family. And we see that Samson begins to take for granted the commandments of God, the promises of God. Nonetheless, he goes on, and he marries this girl, and he throws one of those big, those big parties, the week-long drinking parties. And as part of the wedding celebration, he invites many guests and he, and he issues them a riddle and uh, they go back and forth for quite a, quite a while. Eventually they get the answer from Samson's wife and they take Samson for all he's worth. And so Samson gets incredibly angry. Verse 19 says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town. And he took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told their riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. And so you kind of see this story. Samson just kind of like bouncing from one place to the next, seeing whatever he wants, going after it. He's controlled by his anger. He's controlled by his temper. He's, he's satisfying his selfish desires and beginning to forget that he was set apart for a purpose. And then Samson goes back uh, later after some of the things have settled down, and he goes to get his wife from the territory of the Philistines. But her father had given his wife away to another man. So this makes Samson angry. 
And Samson, in, in chapter 15, verse 4, says, So Samson went and caught 300 foxes. He took torches, and he turned them tail to tail, put a tail between, and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines, and he set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. And so what's going on? And I know we're kind of making our way through this story really quickly. But Samson keeps getting frustrated, and he keeps getting angry. And so he goes out. It's almost like this incredible prank. He catches 300 different foxes. He ties them together in the tails. He lights a torch, in, and then he sets the foxes down. So they're all running through the fields, and they're just burning all of the crops of the Philistines. Well, it makes the Philistines incredibly angry because he's now burned all of their crops. And so they take hundreds of men, and they go to the land of Israel, and they demand that the people of Israel who are enslaved to the Philistines give Samson over to them. Then 3,000 of the men of Israel go to Samson. And they begin to, to complain. Samson, don't you know that the Philistines are lording it over us? Don't you understand that we are their slaves? Why are you bringing trouble on us? It's this incredible story of how the, the people of Israel aren't even looking for salvation at this point. They've just grown very comfortable in their captivity. But they bind Samson. Samson allows himself to be bound and hand him over to the Philistines. They take their savior that God provided, that God set apart, and they give Samson to the Philistines. Then Samson, as soon as he's in the Philistine control, he snaps because of his strength. He snaps the ropes that had been put on him. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey, and he strikes down a thousand men of the Philistines. And once again, Satan, or Satan, Samson goes to war with the Philistines. After his great victory, he goes to Gaza, chapter 16 at this point. Samson went down to Gaza, which was the capital of enemy territory. There he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The people of the Philistines heard that Samson had went in to lie down with a prostitute, and so they lay in ambush all around the city. They're trying to get rid of Samson at this point because he continues to cause so much trouble for them. And Samson, verse 3, lay down until midnight, but at midnight he arose. He took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, two posts, pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. That's such a like a cool side note in Samson's story. I don't know if there's any significance to it. I read commentaries this week that talked about how, you know, the different symbolism that could be represented here. I think it's just a really cool story. Samson showing off that he can tear down the Philistine gates and carry him up a hill. It's pretty impressive. The story goes on, and then finally Samson meets a lady named Delilah. She was a Phil another Philistine woman. He fell in love with her, um, and Delilah was challenged by her people, by the Philistines, to find the secret to Samson's strength. And so several different times she comes to Samson, and she says, Samson, please tell me the secret to your strength. And Samson just makes up things. The secret to my strength is uh, if I'm bound you know, with new ropes that have never been used, and I'll become weak like any other man. And they try it, and nonetheless, Samson prevails against the Philistines. Or if my hair is woven into the loom, then I will become weak and uh, he pulls the loom up and kills the Philistines. But finally, Delilah wears Samson down. And he says to her, the secret to my strength is my long hair. I'm trying to find it. I, um, verse 15. And, and she said, how can you say I love you? This is chapter 16. When your heart is not with me. You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she oppressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. He couldn't handle her disappointment. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. 
for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her with all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought money in their hands, and they shaved his head, they bound Samson, they come upon him, and they defeat him for the first time. They gouge out his eyes, and they take him into captivity. Samson has uh, lost the strength that God provided for him because of his pride. And I want to read how the story of Samson ends. If you have your Bibles, chapter 16, verse 23 through following, it says this. It says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison. And they entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And the story is, when Samson was taken captive, he had lost his strength because he had, uh, his hair had been cut that set him apart for God. They took Samson captive, and they began to use him for entertainment. This great warrior that God had called from birth was now just a sideshow in the temple of Dagon of the Philistines, the very people that God had called him to deliver his people from. You can kind of imagine the scene. The crowd gathered in the temple with their gods. They've, uh, they've, they have the one that uh, called by God defeated and acting as their entertainment. They make a spectacle out of Samson, the savior of Israel. Verse 26, And Samson said to the young men who had held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. They've gathered together to make a spectacle of Samson. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O oh God, that I may be avenging the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. The house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. And here's the key phrase. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. So I know we made our way through the story of Samson incredibly quickly, perhaps too quickly. But what can we learn from Samson's life? As we look through these three chapters, what can we learn from Samson's life? We can see that Samson was called by God. He was set apart to save his people. But Samson had probably five key uh, character deficiencies that prevented him from being all that God had called him to be. The first one was Samson was incredibly impulsive. As we made our way through the story, we saw that Samson was driven by his lust. Whatever caught his eye, that's what he went after with all of his attention. He was driven by his stomach and even by his anger. That Samson was incredibly impulsive, that he went after whatever he wanted, whatever was before him. Uh, I was listening to one pastor who said that one thing will wreck your life like nothing else, and that is being impulsive. He gave an illustration. He says, texting and driving, a recent study showed, makes you 23 times more likely to have an accident than drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana combined. So, uh, but what he said, what the study showed is when you get a text, you have an impulse that turns your attention from the thing that's most important, driving and staying alive, to answering that text as if, as if someone needed your answer so quickly. 
And he said the same thing is true of our spiritual life. When something catches our attention, it turns us away from our focus on God. And the question before us is we have to decide if we're going to be driven by God's will or by our desires. And the best test for that is we ask ourselves the question, what is the primary criteria we use when making decisions? Is our criteria, does this honor God and please him, or does this uh, please me and make me happy? Does this please God or does this please me? Samson was impulsive. He didn't mind doing things that pleased God, like defeating the Philistines, but he always made sure that he was pleased along the way, that his needs were met. Samson was impulsive. At the same, at the same time, Samson was compromising. Samson treated the commands that God gave him casually. He didn't mind breaking them. And you can almost see the story throughout the way he was set apart from birth. And he'd been given very strict, very different uh, set of rules for his life, even in the rest of the law, because God wanted people to be able to see Samson and see that he was set apart for his purpose. So he had long hair. He drank no wine. Uh, he wasn't allowed to touch anything dead. But all along the way, Samson begins compromising the plans and the, uh, the commands that God gave him. You can almost imagine Samson saying, like, what does it hurt if I drink a little bit? I'm getting married. I'm throwing a big party. What if I had a party just like that of the Philistines? What does it hurt if I touch a dead animal? I've done it before. I touched the lion carcass. I touched the jawbone of a donkey. What does it hurt if I cut my hair? Can my strength really come from cutting my hair? When we um, treat the commands of God casually, what if the harm was not in the action itself, but in driving away the favor and the presence of God from your life? Because I think a lot like Samson, we can look at different things that God says about our life, and we can use our mind and say, like, what does it hurt? You know, God says, don't get drunk, but what does it hurt? Like, I've done it before. What if it hurt if I do it again? We, God says, find a husband or find a wife and be yoked uh, together with someone who can be your partner in serving and honoring God. But what if, I, what if I compromise? What if I don't have patience? What could it possibly hurt? God says to honor him with our finances, and he will bless us richly. But what does it hurt if I hoard resources for myself and I don't live a generous life? What happens is when we disobey God, he takes away his blessing from our life. What if the real danger of compromising the commands of God isn't the action itself, but it's in driving out the favor in the presence of God? But also, Samson was unteachable. No one could persuade him. His parents tried to persuade him to honor God, but he would not be persuaded. It kind of goes with the next one. Samson was a loner. Did you notice that? That as we made our way through Samson's story, he was a one-man show. No one spoke into Samson's life. He was set apart for God. He knew that he was set apart, and he lived as if he was set apart from people. People were constantly trying to speak into his life, but he would not hear them. We have to ask the question as we think about Samson's life, are people close enough to your life that they can speak into your life? And are you correctable? How do you respond to criticism? Would those closest to you say that you are teachable? What areas of your life are off limits? When you gather with your community group, you gather with your friends, you gather with other Christ followers, and they begin speaking into your life, you let them speak about this, or you let them speak about that, but you don't let them speak about that area. That's where the enemy will destroy you. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And I am so thankful for the Christian community that has gathered around me. We launched this church, and in this church we have found our best friends, those who spur us on towards love and good works. And so many times I have stupid ideas that my greatest, my, my best friends in Christ, many of you will say, Adam, that doesn't honor God. 
There's no such thing as an isolated Christian. People who get serious about Jesus get serious about his church. I think we've created this culture where we can be a Christian and we can live in isolation. And even the, the church has perpetuated this over and over because we want to count people as part of our church, and so we make it easier and easier and easier for people not to come to church. One of the things we we're working on and kind of experimenting with over the course of the summer is this video teaching. We're not, but we're, what we're going to do is we're going to record the sermon so you can watch it if you're away. Because I know whenever you're away, the first thing you want to do on Sunday morning is watch the sermon. But what we're not going to do is stream it because we don't want people to, to find a video teaching as a substitute for being with God's people. I heard another preacher say a weak local church is better than the greatest podcast from far away. There's no substitute from being surrounded by a Christian community that knows you, that cares for you, that can call you to follow Christ in every area of your life. If you are doing life alone like Samson, we uh, would love to help you get connected to a community group. And then finally, Samson was proud. So he was impulsive, he was compromising, he was unteachable, he was a loner, he was his own moral compass, and he was proud. He was proud in at least three ways. He assumed he would never lose his strength. He assumed that... Uh, uh, yeah, he assumed that he would never lose his strength. He never gave God glory, and he felt entitled to use his blessings for his own purpose. I found this so convicting. Do you ever go through life thinking, I will always have these guilt gifts that God has given me? Like God has given you gifts to glorify and honor him, whether it's a sharp mind or charisma to invite people to know and experience him, to invite them to church, the uh, financial blessings that you can be generous and support the work of God here and around the world. You ever go through life and think, man, I'm always going to have these. I'm always going to have these gifts. I'm always going to have this health. I'm always going to have this ability to make money. I'm always going to have these friends. And do you use your gifts to direct more attention to yourself, or do you use your gifts to direct attention to God? Samson was called to be a judge, but he never led a resistance. He was the only judge that made it all about him. Every one of the other judges led a group of people to free God's people. Samson made it about him. As we recap Samson's life, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think Samson doesn't sound like Jesus. Like, we're here to find Jesus in our favorite stories, but Samson doesn't sound like Jesus. Samson sounds a lot more like me than Samson sounds like Jesus. That's true. That Samson's story is our story. When we are left to ourselves, we will struggle with sin. We will struggle with temptation. And honestly, the end result is our life doesn't look too much better than Samson. We can be impulsive. We can be compromising. We can be unteachable. We can do life alone, and we can be proud. But here is the good news. Here is the good news. Jesus is here in our favorite story. He knew that when he called Samson, Samson wouldn't be able to defeat the enemies on his own. That's why when he told his mother the birth announcement, he said he will begin to save the people from the Philistines. Someone would have to come after him who would set his people free once and for all. And someone would come after Samson who would live a life that looks somewhat like Samson, who would also have an angel announce his birth, who would live an obscure childhood, but would go on to have an incredible life, who would be tempted in every way with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, yet would remain without sin, who would be bound by his own people and handed over to his enemy, who would look defeated, who would be made a mockery of, made a spectacle of, but he would defeat more in his death than he did through his life. And that person is Jesus. If you have your Bible, slip over with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And we're going to finish with a text from Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a New Testament letter. The Apostle Paul, maybe. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. We think it might have been the Apostle Paul, but nowhere do we know for sure. Nonetheless, the book of Hebrews helps us understand how God was working in the Old Testament. 
says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So since, since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Hear what he says. Let us hold fast to our confession. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if you've put your faith in Jesus, hold fast to it. Don't lose sight. Don't compromise. Don't be impulsive. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The writer of Hebrews is saying, when you think about the person and the work of Jesus, that he came from heaven to earth, that he lived a life just like we live, but he was without sin. He was tempted as we are. He struggled as we are. He was hungry as we are, yet he remained without sin. We can put our trust and our hope in him because he's been there before. Let us hold fast and draw near. And then in the next few chapters, the writer of Hebrews goes on and begins to explain the person and the work of Jesus that he is a high priest who is mediating between us and God, that his sin, or I'm sorry, his sacrifice for our sins was sufficient. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 10. And we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews telling us about the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. And I just want you to hear what the writer of Hebrews says as I read this passage for us. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, when Christ came into the world, he recognized that the sin offerings put in place in the Old Testament, they weren't working. They weren't changing people's hearts. Outward religion, showing up at temple, offering some money, uh, offering a sacrifice. They were going through the motions, but they were continually in the cycle of rebellion against God. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Samson was called by God, but he was focused on his will. Jesus shows up and says, I've come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, they are offered on account of the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He repeats it because it's important. Jesus came to accomplish the will of God, to save his people, to finish the work. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, being shaped into the image of God. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, and after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's saying that when Jesus died for us, he defeated the enemy once and for all so that we could be set free, so that the, the, the consequence of our sin would be paid for in the eyes of God, that we would no longer be slaves to temptation and sin because he, he, was, he went through temptation and sin and conquered it so we can conquer it through Christ. My question when I get to these kind of passages is always this, so like, what do I do with it? Like, I've seen the story of Samson. 
We went through it at lightning speed today. We saw some of the highlights. We saw Samson fail. I can relate to that because I have also failed. We see how it points us to Jesus. And I can believe in and I can trust in the work of Jesus. But what do we do? Where do we go from here? The writer of Hebrews finishes with this. He says, therefore, brothers, meaning therefore, Christians, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22 says, let us draw near. Let us come near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And what he's saying is if we can look at Samson's story and we can see our sin and our struggles in Samson's story, we can come near not through our own works, but through the work of Jesus, that we've been made clean because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Let us draw near. And then he finishes with this. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. Let us draw near and hold fast. All through the book of Hebrews, I was reading this week, it says, draw near to God and hold fast to him. Draw near to God and hold fast to him. He is faithful. I was thinking about that this week. This week I went down to Southwest Florida. I was going to go sailing with my brother. If that sounds like a flex, just wait and hear how the story ends. It was not that fun. I have the scars, the sunburn, and the seasickness to prove that it was not that enjoyable. They, you know, we watched like Disney movies like Peter Pan. We're like, oh, this is going to be so great. We should have watched The Perfect Storm because every single day in Florida, I don't know if you guys knew this. I've only lived here for as many years as I've been alive. Every day it storms. And when you're out on the ocean and it starts storming, the waves kind of start to, to come up. And it seemed like every time I went to go sailing with him, a storm was rolling in. And, and I have zero tolerance for like motion sickness at all. And so if there's like any wave at all, I start to get queasy and the boat starts to get out of control. Uh, and so every time we would set out, it seemed like we had to turn back to the harbor. But when we came back into the marina, though the, the waves were crashing out in the gulf and though the wind was howling and lightning was cracking, we could draw near to the dock because it was affixed to the land and we could hold fast to it. It was incredible. The moment you, you secure the boat, everything calms down because you're in the safety of the harbor. I was thinking about God so often this week as I stepped away, change of pace, and just thinking about his goodness and grace in our life. And these words just continue to play in my mind, draw near and hold fast. Storms are predictable. Temptation is going to come. Sin and selfishness is, uh, the Bible says, crouching at our door, looking to devour us. But Jesus has defeated the storms and temptation of temptation for us. And the invitation, the story is long and it's complicated, but the invitation is really relatively simple. Draw near and hold fast. Spend time with God and hold fast. And he will give us the strength to overcome what Samson was unable to resist. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is that we get to gather this week and every week to look back at these Old Testament stories, these stories that we grew up with, these stories that we love to celebrate. And Father, I pray that you would just breathe new life into them as we read them together as a church family. Lord, I pray that you go behind me and you fill in the gaps and your Holy Spirit goes to work and starts uh, sanctifying us, cutting out the sin and the temptation, allowing us to experience your grace that gives us victory when we feel defeated. That like Samson, when we are down and out, we can put our trust in the one who called us. That we cannot accomplish 
forgiveness by our own effort, but we can put our hope in you. Lord, I pray that the invitation today to draw near and hold fast would resonate in our hearts and minds as we go this week. As we make much of you, make yourself known to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.